we're really worried that there's going to be a ventilator shortage in Massachusetts. We talked about it as a team and we decided that, you know, this is probably the best thing we can do to be able to help in this, uh, this time of crisis. And so the whole team jumped in and we started developing an emergency ventilator around March 28th. The first week we spent really understanding our design requirements and seven days later we had several different versions of parts. We did all of this while everybody was scattered about in their homes, right? Nobody was in the same facility. Welcome to the Masters of Engineering podcast. Cool products to the people who develop them and how they do it. I'm John Hirschtick, head of the software as a service business here at PTC. I'm also the former co-founder and CEO of Onshape and of SolidWorks. I've spent my whole life building CAD and other software tools for product development, but the best part of my job is that I get to meet some of the coolest and smartest product developers in the world. And in my podcast, you get to meet them too. My guest today is Eduardo Torrealba. He's the founder and CEO at Meter, but he's also the developer or leader of the RISE Emergency Ventilator Project, uh, which is fighting COVID, an amazing project. Before that, he was director of engineering at Formlabs, and he's worked on a whole lot of other interesting projects. Eduardo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So um, the RISE Emergency Ventilator, I know a little about it. You know, it looks like an amazing, cool project. Can you tell us what it is and how you built it? Yeah, for sure. So the RISE project came about um, some conversations that people on our team had with uh, previous collaborators they'd worked with uh, in their careers. So one of our engineers a PhD from MIT who during his uh, PhD research had worked with some clinicians at Mass General Hospital and uh, the the effort that he had done with them was around uh, these bag squeezing resuscitators so in that situation you take one of these bags you put it on a patient in this case a neonatal patient and uh, you would squeeze that bag to breathe for the patient and the doctors at Mass General had this problem where they wanted to train people how to properly use those bags especially if the patient had any kind of acute illnesses. And so to do this, you need really accurate monitoring of the airflow that's going through the bag into the patient's lungs. And so this is what uh, you know, one of our team members had worked on previously. Uh, it might have been a few years since he'd worked on that project. The IP had been uh, sort of packaged up and uh, you know, assigned to a larger company. They'd been building a product out of it. Uh, and then you know, Kevin, the engineer, had been working on Meter for the last several months. So, you know, Meter is an industrial inspection company. We can talk more about that later on. But uh, we've been working hard on, you know, building our new hardware products and software products. And then COVID hit and the whole team had to go and shelter in place and, uh, you know, be shut into our homes and apartments. And during this time period, one of those doctors that Kevin had worked with previously reached out to him and said, you know, we're, we're really worried that there's going to be a ventilator shortage in Massachusetts. And there's a lot of open source projects that are popping up to work on this problem. But most of them lack the, the monitoring and the controls that we would need to be able to trust one of these devices with a patient without having a doctor stand directly next to it and monitor it. And, you know, at the time, we really didn't know how extreme the COVID uh, outbreak could become in Massachusetts. And there was a lot of concern that there would need to be, you know, mass patient monitoring facilities and a need to have, you know, multiple patients per doctor. And if you're going to do that, you need to be able to monitor those patients. So... They reached out to Kevin and said, is there any way we could, you know, redevelop these monitors and controls to be used in this fashion? Um, and then, you know, we talked about it as a team and we decided that 
uh, you know, this is probably the best thing we can do to be able to help in this, uh, this time of crisis. And so the whole team jumped in and we started developing an emergency ventilator um, around March 28th. And then that was the, the birth of the RISE project. So you, you started building the RISE ventilator on March 28th. And yeah. when do you feel your design was ready to manufacture? Yeah, we had secured all of the parts, the final parts to, to manufacture uh, 250 units uh, 21 days later. So in 21 days, you and your team, who's never built a ventilator before, you take the concept and you develop a ventilator that you said a moment ago you believe is good enough to you know, to have the appropriate controls and monitoring to make it a professional, safe experience. Is that right? That's right. And the reason that we had the confidence to do that was a combination of uh, Kevin's experience in this space. He had really deep background here as an engineer building these medical devices. The clinicians that we were working with directly at Mass General Hospital who were instrumental in giving us the feedback that we needed to properly design everything. And then the rest of the team having you know pretty significant experience bringing tens of thousands of units of hardware into production and manufacturing uh, over the course of our careers. And that combination really led to some pretty rapid iteration around a high quality concept. A pretty rapid iteration. I think that's understating the case here. If you <laughs> went in 21 days, I mean, now we're seeing a lot of COVID projects move quickly, but yeah. I think what I've seen, Eduardo, in other projects I've seen is is sometimes there's speed and sometimes there's professionalism, but but it's rare that the projects combine both. Would and you've managed to do that here. You've managed to achieve a rare combination. Was there something intentional about how you got that combination of speed and professionalism, or just you just kind of happen? I think that uh, you know you you can't pull off that combination without being really intentional about it, and that's not possible without the right people. And so ultimately, this was a you know, amazing team effort from the people that we have at Meter and the the expertise that we have and everything from PCDA design, uh, you know, mechanical engineering, software development, uh, expertise building, resuscitation products uh, for for clinicians and for patients. You know, that sort of combination of things is what makes this possible. I think there are a lot of teams that had more experience building medical devices, but maybe not moving quickly. And then there are other teams that knew how to move really quickly, but didn't really have that connection to medical devices. And I think that combination was really powerful. Um, you know, ultimately, I think the, the good news was that there wasn't the large ventilator shortage that we were all worried was going to happen, you know, nationwide. And that's, that's a great story for the country. And so we didn't end up having to produce, you know, these units at the scale that we thought we were going to. But we were, we were ready. And I think that that's the part that I'm the most satisfied by with all of this. Well, and I, I agree, Eduardo. This is a product that you know, this is one of those products that I hope is never needed. And yeah. if it's needed, the world will be really glad you built it. <laughs> and yeah. if it's not needed, well, you only spent 21 days anyway. Not to understate it, but, you know, compared to what it can do. I mean, even if you were to save one life with this, it would be well worth it. Definitely. So in addition to the idea of speed and professionalism, there's more to it than that because you obviously set out with Rise to build something different than existing ventilators. And I can imagine some of the reasons you built it, but could you tell us in a little more detail, what were the key reasons, the key goals you had for Rise with respect to existing ventilator products? We really had two main priorities that we were thinking about as we designed the product. The first one was those alarms and alerts that I, you know, I mentioned earlier 
ventilator. So the ability to monitor the patient and to understand if the patient is responding to ventilation per clinician intent, as well as monitor the device and alert the clinician or whoever the healthcare professional is that's there to any kind of failures that might happen. So if you have a hardware failure, electrical failure, if you're just not performing um, you know, as you, as you want to, being able to alert someone to that is really important. And so that was sort of our North Star for everything we did. And the second factor for us was scalability and the ability and just the capability to build a lot of these very quickly. Uh, when we started this, there were estimates that there could be a million ventilators needed in the United States. And we didn't think we were going to build a million devices, but you know, if we needed to build a thousand or 10,000 of these, you know, with contract manufacturing partners, we wanted something that would have a minimum number of parts, you know, could be put together easily that would have a supply chain that was not constrained by the typical components that go into ventilators. We didn't want to do anything that would interfere with the production of traditional ventilators. Because I think, you know, as, as you said, we, we really wanted to be able to, you know, help here. And I don't think that entering into a bidding war with components in a supply chain for traditional ventilators is any, any help at all. So, you know, we went sort of off the beaten path for medical devices for the supply chain. And, uh, you know, those two things, manufacturability and the, uh, the monitoring and the alarms were the two most important factors for us in this design. So you bring speed and professionalism in this unique combination, but I think the scalability is an equally important third leg of it because you could work really fast on and do a professional job, but if you're not set up to scale it and you thought about almost the if this were a business, you'd talk, t- think about a distribution model, but you, you thought about how scalable could this be to get the word out. And, and can you tell us, you know, I've seen the website, and I've heard a little about it. You're scaling through making your whole IP base essentially available to a, a as you say, a turnkey operation right. for partners. Is that, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, you know, originally we set out to build units ourselves for the shortfall that was forecasted in Massachusetts. Uh, that did materialize, which is, again, fantastic news. In, in the long run, Meter is not a medical devices company, right? We are we're an industrial inspection company. We're a startup. We're a small team. Uh, we're not equipped to have all the customer support and all the different things that you would need to really build out a sort of feature-rich product and ship that at scale. So what we've done is, uh, you know, we've created a, a packet, essentially, that has all of the mechanical drawings, the specifications, the bill of materials, assembly instructions, testing, the firmware, sort of the entire kit of things that anyone would need to go out and manufacture these devices and, f- and put them into the field, instructions for use, all that's included. And so, you know, that's available for any sort of qualified partner that might want to come by and, you know, work with us. We'd be happy to support them through uh, whatever they need to be able to get this up and running. And, you know, we haven't fully open sourced the entire thing because we want to make sure that if there's a partner that wants to come in and use the technology, that for whatever reason, maybe it's a local, uh, you know, situation in another country, won't be able to use completely open source technology, but they might be able to license something. We're going to leave that on the table. But in the long run, I think, uh, you know, if that doesn't materialize, then our goal would be to completely open source this effort and put everything out there for people to be able to use and learn from uh, whenever they have a chance to. Really fantastic how thoughtful on that side of it, too. You got started, you said, at the end of March. Now, you're a startup company. Presumably, you're working pretty hard on your core business, but you decide to devote the whole team to this ventilator project. How did that decision happen? Do you have to like check with your board? Was there debate about that in the company? Yeah, we, we made that decision pretty quickly. Uh, we did talk to our board about it. They were incredibly supportive. 
Uh, so there were no issues there. You know, I think that everybody was on that footing of, you know, doing whatever we can to help. We had board members who were spending their time, um, you know, finding swabs, you know, building out capacity to make swabs. We had board members that were helping import, you know, millions of units of PPE. Um, so, you know, our, our company was already pretty well um, involved with this entire effort to do whatever we could. I think that us saying like, hey, we think we can build a ventilator uh, was was another really great effort by people associated with Meter. I won't name everyone because we're still slightly in stealth mode about what we're doing, but it's a really great group of people and there wasn't a lot of debate. There was a lot of like, let's make this happen. Did you take the whole company? Did you take the whole Meter team and say, let's work on the ventilator or did you take a subset group? We did, we took the whole company. We had about a dozen employees and uh, everybody was devoted to this for that, that three week time period. That's amazing. As amazing as the design and engineering is, it's so remarkable in so many ways, in the design, in the commitment, in the speed, the professionalism, the scale, but also that you're able to take an entire startup company and have the vision and guts and alignment of your board to go work on this really, really unique in, in my travels and something I want to applaud. I wanted to also ask you about the process now. So you take the team on March 28th, you say we're gonna build a ventilator, the board gives the thumbs up, but you know, you, you I'm guessing that in Meter, you're not on a 21 day schedule right. <laughs> to build your new system. So what was the process like of building this compared to a normal product development process? I think that, you know, in many ways, our process was the same thing that we do when we're working internally, but it was just compressed into, you know, hours instead of days or, days instead of months. You know, the way that we handled that was kind of twofold. One was uh, increasing our frequency of communication. You have to remember too, we did all of this while everybody was scattered about in their homes, right? Nobody was in the same facility. Um, Great point. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we had daily video calls. We had multiple, you know, check-ins between different individual contributors. Uh, people were communicating on Slack and over email and through video chat constantly to be able to answer questions you know, raise questions, spot problems, solve those things. So, you know, I think in the first the first week we spent really understanding our, our design requirements and what needed to happen for this device to be successful. And by the end of that, you know, seven days later we had, I think we'd done two revisions of the mechanical design and we'd started the electrical design. Um, and we had, we'd started those 3D prints over that weekend. So by that Monday, we had like several different. So you took your normal process and just condensed it, just like like fast right. forwarding a video. You just said, or, you know, yeah. upping the clock speed on something. But it can't be that easy because, you know, if, if you double the speed, you drive down the highway, the, the tires are going to start squealing in the turns. So were there parts of the process that didn't work when you sped it up? Were there things that just got a little out of control or problems? introduced? Sure. I, I think that, you know, the the biggest thing that was unsustainable, I think, was the load on the individual people that were involved. And we were all feeling it, right? By the end of this, we had worked three consecutive, like 120-hour weeks. And you just, you can't do that for very long. It's just not a realistic thing. But in time of crisis, you know, if that's what needs to happen, then our team was willing to step up and do that. It's not the case for everybody, but we're very fortunate that we were able to do that as a team. And there were problems, right? We found that like part of the design had some problems with fatigue and we had to redesign that very quickly. And we worked with some phenomenal partners at 
Prototech up in New Hampshire to make sheet metal for us to make a small modification to something. So there were a bunch of little things that you catch. Normally you catch them in like a, a multi-month long um, FMEA process and then testing and analysis, but we were kind of doing all of this live uh, and putting in enough monitoring so that if there was a problem with the unit in the field, you know, it could just be cut off and it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't cause any problems for the patient. Um, so it was fast, but it seemed to work. So it worked. And, and now we turn to maybe one of my favorite parts of a story like this is tell me about the tools you used. Um, did you, did you choose different tools and, and did you use new ones, not, stop using old ones? What about the tools that you used? Yeah. You know, we use pretty similar tools to what we normally do. I will say that, uh, you know, we're, we're typically a solid workshop, but we did switch over to Onshape for this effort. And uh, the reason we did that was, uh, we ended up with a pretty ballooning group of people that were involved here, right? We were we were interacting with a number of different partners that were doing 3D printing, that were doing sheet metal fabrication. We had people that were, you know, hopping in and helping with design reviews. And it was a lot easier to give those people uh, on-shape logins than to give them, you know, SOLIDWORKS credentials or, or ship those files around. And we did six revisions. Like the thing you're seeing on the website is V6 of this product. In 21 days. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it happened fast and, um, you know, Onshape was phenomenal for this. And I think that for a lot of projects, it was a great tool. You know, the, the fact that the, the tool was always alive was really important for us. So there were several design reviews that we conducted over Zoom where we'd have eight or 10 people that would be on a call and somebody would share their screen and they would be, you know, live manipulating the model. And then if someone had a question, they didn't just have to say like, okay, turn it around, spin it, do this, do that. They could be in the workspace with the user who was the designer and they could actually click on things and highlight stuff and you could view and edit and collaboratively do things at the same time, you know, in, in an easier way than I think I've seen with, with any other CAD platform. And so that was just incredibly valuable for us. We were moving too fast to you know, deal with, uh, with mailing files around or setting up servers or a lot of the other things that we would need to do to have that level of collaboration with other CAD packages. I love talking to you, Eduardo, about Rise, but you've done so many other interesting things. I'd love to hear more about Meter. I know it's it's you know you, you can't share everything, but what can you tell me about what you're doing at Meter? Yeah, Meter. You know, we're publicly we're saying that we're an industrial inspection company, and I think that you know kind of the lead up story to it uh, is that you know I've been really focused on building a better 3D printer. Right? How do you make these devices? improve their quality, improve the materials that are available, uh, you know, turn them into tools, not just for prototyping, but actually for manufacturing and really change the way that people make physical objects. Um, there's a consistent conversation that I would have with, uh, you know, with people in the field, and that was that they really loved these new digital manufacturing technologies, but they, they didn't trust the output of the technology. They didn't have the confidence that the items that were coming out of the printer or the you know, the new casting technology or the new um, composite manufacturing system were really up to stuff with the more traditional technology. Um, you know, maybe compare that to injection molding or CNC machining. And so, you know, I, I kept asking questions about why, why, why. And, uh, you know, it turns out that it's very difficult to inspect a lot of digitally manufactured products. Uh, and that, was, that wasn't news to me, but kind of seeing the scope of that was surprising after a lot of those conversations. And so, that just kind of led, this is over like a 12 month time period, right? That I'm kind of having these conversations in the midst of lots of other ones. And 
there was a dinner that I was at with, with one of the people who ended up co-founding Meter with me. I said, you know, there's this problem. People want to make better objects. You know, how do we, how do we square that? And they were saying, you know, what if we built a, a 10 times better inspection technology? Instead of building a 10 times better printer, what if we just make inspection technology 10 times better, 10 times cheaper, 10 times easier, you know, improve it across the board? And that was, that was a real light bulb moment. I think, you know, switching from thinking about production to thinking about inspection and characterization of these tools, um, it, was, it was exciting because, you know, it's just a space that I think in the mechanical engineering pipeline, it probably has the worst ratio of like importance to exciting of, of most things uh, that you would do, right? Most engineers love catting things and love building things and love testing them, but they don't really love busting out a pair of calipers or setting up a CMM or whatever they might do to characterize that part. So, you know, making that easier, making it faster, making it a lot cheaper than it is right now, those are the missions that we have. Uh, right now, inspection has been built around, I think, a lot of the manufacturing technologies that came of age in the 20th century. And we want to build a 21st century uh, inspection technology company. I also want to ask you about your transition from working in a company to being an entrepreneur. It's something that um, that some of us have done and many people think about, and it's not for everyone. If someone were listening to the podcast and were saying to themselves, gee, should I, should I leave my job and start a company? What kind of advice would you give them to think about that big decision? I think the, the conversation I have around this topic the most is between, is helping people kind of unpack the difference between uncertainty and risk. So when you are an engineer, you're working in technology, you have a good job, you, you know, generally have a pretty good safety net, right? If something goes wrong and your company goes out of business, you can jump into another company, right? I'm sure you have the same experience at Onshape that we have at Meter. You're always looking for good people, right? You want to pull in the best engineers and they're not just standing on the street corner waiting for you to come by. And so if somebody's good, um, they can probably find something new, right? So, so that risk is minimized in terms of, uh, you know, having your financial, you know, independence cut out from under you and you need to go on public assistance or something like that. That to me, that's what I think of as risk, right? Like, and I'm relatively young. I don't have a lot of kids. I don't have a house. I don't have a mortgage, these things. Um, and so my risk profile is different, right? But I think that a lot of people call uncertainty risk. And uncertainty is, I don't know what's going to happen next, right? I'm not sure what's going to happen in three months with my business. Meter, we, maybe we're, we solve all of our problems and we're shipping products really soon. Maybe we find out that there's more that we need to do. Maybe our customers want something different. There's a million ways this could go, and it's pretty uncertain. Contrast that with working at another company. There's another person that made that decision. You might have a two or three year time period in front of you where you pretty much know what you're going to be doing. That's a lot more certainty. And so I think if you're willing to, you know, accept the risk that is real of starting your own company, and that makes sense for you financially and personally, but also if you're able to deal with the uncertainty and, and take that, you know, sort of roll with those punches, I think you could be very well started, suited to be an entrepreneur. And uh, you know, there's lots of other people that are a lot smarter than me that have written lots of books on what it takes to be an entrepreneur. But I really find that ability to kind of separate the risks from uncertainty and deal with both of them logically to be one of the most important characteristics for someone to become an entrepreneur. You've seen a lot of other product development teams um, in, in your career, right? And the, yeah. besides the ones you've worked on. 
What would be, do you have any advice that's coming up, especially these days, product development is changing, it sounds like, and COVID is teaching people new lessons. Do you see anything in, in product development teams that you see that you say is your, your pet peeve that you say, I wish I always see the same mistake, and this is your chance to tell other people, hey, here's the, the top one or two things that I see people doing wrong all the time, and I wish they'd change in this way. I wish they'd do blank or use blank or work in blank way. Is there something you see as kind of a common error in product development? I think the most common by far problem that I see in product development is waiting too long to put your product in front of a customer. I think that a lot of engineering organizations and product organizations will spend 50 or 100% more time than they need. Uh, or I guess I'd say like, you know, one and a half to two X the amount of time they need um, to put a product in front of a customer and start getting that very real feedback. You know, you can have focus groups come in, you can interview people, you can ask them all the questions in the world, but when somebody has to swipe a credit card or send you a PO or, you know, actually wire some money to you, they have a very different perspective on what success or failure looks like for using your product or service. And so getting those paying customers super early is really important. And that's, that's very hard to do when it comes to hardware, right? You, you want to have a good enough product that it's not just a waste of time full of bugs, but knowing where to, where to draw that line, I think that's incredibly difficult. And most teams that I talk to, um, you know, they, they struggle with that. And for good reason, it, it's a hard one. But I think the sooner the better um, when it comes to getting feedback from customers on whether or not you're headed down the right path. Sometimes those are small corrections, but sometimes you have to build something completely different. Eduardo, a big thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time and telling your stories. Thanks for having me, John. It's been good to be with you. And to our listeners, thank you all for tuning in. You can learn more about the Rise Ventilator at riseventilator.com. That's R-I-S-E ventilator.com. Or you can learn about Eduardo's company Meter at meter.parts. That's M-E-T-E-R dot P-A-R-T-S. And you can listen to other episodes of Masters of Engineering or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your podcasts. I love hearing what you think, so make sure you leave a review of this episode and tell me what you thought of Eduardo and his stories. And please follow me on Twitter, at Jay Hirschtick. That's it for today. See you next time on Masters of Engineering.